from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this bonus podcast episode, we're bringing you a special series of stories we've done about science and creativity. Today, way to go, Einstein. Part one of our three-part series about the scientist who's loved even by people who don't care about science, Albert Einstein. It's the winter of 1915, and this 36-year-old physics professor in Berlin is having just about the worst year of his life. At the end of 1915, everything is coming apart for him. He's racing to figure out the theory of general relativity. So he's staying up all night to try to get the equations right. Biographer Walter Isaacson. In the meantime, he's estranged from his first wife, trying to get a divorce. He is dating his first cousin. His, uh, one of his children is having deep mental problems. And his wife is uh, trying to prevent him from seeing the kids. And he doesn't compartmentalize that well. Instead, he writes a ton of letters. Never in my life have I tormented myself like this. I am often so engrossed in my work that I forget to eat lunch. And there's a world war. He's in the capital city of the losing side. World War I is ending in defeat. They're starting to blame the Jews for it. And he's very much a loner in the Prussian Academy, living alone in a big apartment in Berlin, padding around having ulcers because he's trying to race to get to the mathematics of general relativity. It's a problem he's been working on for 10 years now. His last big breakthrough was back in 1905 when he was practically a kid. And now he's just stuck. I do not believe that I am able to find the mistake myself. For in this matter, my mind is too set in a deep rut. It was a really grueling time for him. When he was growing up in Germany in the 1880s and 90s, nobody pegged Albert Einstein as some genius. Well, you know, Albert Einstein was slow in in learning to speak as a child, so slow that his parents thought he was a bit backwards and they consulted a doctor. But later on... He would have been a special ed kid? Yes, he would have been special ed, and thank goodness we did not have special ed back then because he learned to think visually and he learned to question things that you and I kind of take for granted. In fact, he dropped out of high school and then had to apply twice to a university in Switzerland that accepted students who didn't have high school diplomas. He was actually very good in math. There's a wonderful sort of, you know, rumor that Einstein failed math. Right. Now, but he did have a problem that lots of very smart students have. He didn't try that hard. Instead of attending class or studying in university, he'd rather just play the violin in cafes. He expected afterwards to breeze into graduate school, but he couldn't get in anywhere and couldn't find a job teaching either. But in the end, he ended up at the patent office. The Swiss patent office in Bern. He had a stool in the patent office. He was only a third-class examiner because he still couldn't get this doctoral dissertation accepted. And so he couldn't be promoted to second class or first class. You needed to to have the doctorate to be a chief of class one patent clerk? Correct. To become a physicist, he knew he had to do research and publish it. He didn't have a lab, but he did have all these patent applications coming across his desk. And a lot of those applications 
this was Switzerland, had to do with getting the trains to run on time, which got Einstein thinking. We had railroads, we had telegraphs, we had standard time zones, and we were traveling. So suddenly it all matters, and Einstein is looking at patent applications for synchronizing clocks. You know, the Swiss had gone on standard time zones, and if you've ever interviewed a Swiss person, they tend to be really Swiss. They want it to strike the hour in Bern at the exact instant it striked it in Zurich, and the only way to do that is to send a signal between the clocks. So Einstein was looking at these patent applications and wondering, is it true what Isaac Newton had said, that time is the same for everybody everywhere? And he comes up with a thought experiment, which is if you're traveling really fast towards one of the clocks, what will look synchronized is different than if you're traveling really fast in the other direction. Because of the nanosecond, it takes a signal to catch up with you while you're traveling. And the person speeding away sees the clock strike the hour a tiny bit later than the person standing right next to the clock. And he said, oh, I get it. The speed of light is always constant, but time is relative depending on your motion. If you think about it, we're seeing it all the time. Physicist Lawrence Krauss. If you look at a picture of uh, your elementary school class, okay, mm-hmm. well, you say that's an instant in time when I when my, that picture is taken. But it's not really an instant in time because the light from the students in the back of the classroom took longer to get to the camera than the light from the students in the front of the classroom. Uh-huh. So you're really seeing an image that's smeared out in time as well as space. And that idea became known as special relativity. It rocked the foundations of physics at the time. Since Newton, back in the 1600s, had said so, everybody took it for granted that time and space were absolute, that they were the same for everyone, everywhere in the universe. But Einstein said, no, uh uh-uh, just the opposite, in fact. Time and space are relative, depending on where you are and where you're headed. Einstein was the right person to make that mental leap. He had not been somebody who accepted traditional teachings. He was a bit of a rebel. Every other physicist trying to figure out this problem had read Newton. And Newton begins at Poughkeepsie by saying time marches along, second by second, irrespective of how we observe it. And here's a guy trying to figure out patent applications for devices that will synchronize clocks. And he's saying, how do we know that? Just because Newton tells us? But special relativity was just one of the breakthrough papers Einstein wrote in 1905 when he was 26 years old. He has three major insights and two minor ones and then an addendum. This was Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, his miracle year. His mind was exploding with ideas and theories and possibilities, and it took the world a while to catch up with him. Eventually... He quit his patent office job and started climbing the academic ladder. But something kept nagging at him. Another thought experiment that special relativity couldn't help him solve. The famous example he used was a thought experiment in an elevator in empty space. If you're in an elevator in empty space with no gravity and it accelerates upward, you get pushed down towards the floor. Anyone who's been in an elevator feels that push. If you had a ball and let it go, 
seen from outside, the ball would be standing still, but in the frame of the elevator, the ball would be accelerating towards the floor. And he realized that there's really no experiment you could do that would distinguish for that person in the elevator whether he or she was in a gravitational field or in an elevator that was accelerating. The show will resume very, very shortly. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio360Show. And now, back to the podcast. So Einstein was pushing against another of Isaac Newton's basic principles, the force of gravity. But he just couldn't figure out the math and banged his head against the problem for a decade. The hardest decade of his life. He'd had this miracle year, and now, a decade later, he can't make any progress. He's stalled. And all this family trouble, in love with his cousin, separated from his wife, kids turning against him. He tries moving back in with his wife, but they can't even talk to each other. You'll renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego, one, my sitting at home with you, two, my going out or traveling. At the same time, there's another German mathematician in Göttingen working on this gravity problem. And he's much closer to making the equations work, and Einstein knows it. If the other guy publishes first, it'll be his theory of relativity. Then Einstein goes back to a series of equations that he'd given up on years before and starts to get traction with the math. And there it is. He's broken his block. What he's discovered will change the course of physics. General relativity tells us that space can curve in the presence of matter. The curvature of space is what we experience as gravity. He'd worked out a solution for the problem that had baffled scientists since Newton watched that apple fall from the tree. Where does gravitational force come from? Einstein figured out gravity isn't a force. It's just the side effect of curved space. You can try to picture it if you take a ball and roll it, a big bowling ball on a trampoline, and it curves the fabric of the trampoline, and you roll some billiard balls after it, They start rolling, and they curve to the bowling ball. Why? Not because the bowling ball has some mysterious attraction, which is people thought gravity was before Einstein, but because the bowling ball has curved the fabric of the trampoline. The great leap Einstein makes is he takes it from the two-dimensional fabric of the trampoline and puts it into the four dimensions of space and time. General relativity is a theory that tells us that space and time are dynamical. They are affected by the presence of matter and energy. And it's that nonlinear relationship that both makes general relativity exciting and very complicated. Einstein wrote it up and published his theory of general relativity in 1916. This is the greatest satisfaction of my life. The theory is of incomparable beauty. But to test the theory, prove it was true, they needed a total solar eclipse. Luckily, they got one in 1919. They aimed a telescope right next to the sun, which was blocked out by the moon for seven minutes, and there they could see it. Stars, 
stars that shouldn't have been there because they should have been hidden behind the sun. But as Einstein had predicted, the giant mass of our sun made space curve around it so that the light from those faraway stars was bending around the sun. And a graduate student of his saying, you know, isn't this amazing? What would you have felt if it had turned out otherwise? And Einstein says, Then I would have been sorry for the dear Lord. The theory is correct. Suddenly, his name was on the front page of newspapers with a new theory of gravity. And the New York Times headline is, Lights All Askew in the Heavens. Yeah. Man of Science More or Less Agog is a subhead. Uh, stars not where they were supposed to or appear to be or something like yeah. that. Einstein theory proven correct. Remember, this is right after World War I. 18 million people had been killed. Science had invented the machine guns and mustard gas that made the war so deadly. But here was an international group of scientists, German and British, working together peacefully to change the way we thought about the nature of existence, discover the truth. It was important because we had just gone through the war, and you had a theory of a German scientist proven correct by a British astronomer with an international crew that went to islands in the Atlantic to look at an eclipse, and the world was hungering for something like that, just like it was hungering for a Charlie Chaplin. In fact, Chaplin invited Einstein to one of his movie premieres. On his first visit to America, cities threw Einstein parades. This former patent clerk who couldn't get a job as a teacher was giving public lectures to huge packed houses. He was a world celebrity, and after that it was very difficult for him to lead the same life. It's so dreadful that I can barely breathe anymore, not to mention getting around to any sensible work. The theory of relativity became famous too, and it unsettled people. You have all these people who are saying time and space and the location of particles and everything else are no longer certain. And it felt like it had unmoored us from that certainty of a Newtonian universe. At the same time, since the beginning of the century and even more since the war, artists were questioning all the standard understandings. Composers threw out classical melodies and went atonal. Novelists turned inward. Painters stopped painting realistically. Objectivity was out. Subjectivity ruled. In this new modern world, everything was relative. I think Stravinsky, Picasso... Uh, certainly proves they knew of Einstein. They did try to wrestle with his theories. And so that notion that uh, we don't have to be bound by the classical rules anymore, I think uh, sort of fed on itself. But Albert Einstein didn't listen to Stravinsky. He believed the universe was like Mozart's music, orderly, elegant, beautiful, rational. Unfortunately, people started conflating and confusing Einstein's theory of relativity with moral relativism, the idea that there aren't any universal moral principles and that what's ethical or empirically true in life all depends on context, that it's all relative. He abhorred the notion that the theory of relativity was supposed to lead to relativism. He believed it led to some real certainties about the universe. 
and moral certainties, good versus definite evil, were about to get tested. It was especially a problem because the anti-Semites arising in the 1920s in Germany started using that as a case against Einstein. Really? Was that he was a relativist. Another scientist, a rival of Einstein's, wrote in a Nazi newspaper, the most important example of the dangerous influence of Jewish circles on the study of nature has been provided by Herr Einstein. Einstein left Nazi Germany early and settled in America, in Princeton, New Jersey. But even at that remove, he was thinking of ways to defeat the regime running his country. And he understood that relativity, his theory, could lead scientists and engineers to a weapon vastly more powerful than any ever before. He writes a letter to Franklin Roosevelt. Sir... It may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power would be generated. This new phenomena would also lead to the construction of bombs. Roosevelt read the letter and started the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Einstein wasn't involved. He's up in the Adirondacks when he gets news of the uh, dropping of the atom bomb. And he just goes, oh, my God. And he really realizes that this will change everything. And so he really urged a new way of looking at atomic weapons, which, by the way, came to pass. I mean, we never used the bomb again. In a few decades, relativity had gone from a theory so outlandish that nobody really believed it to a terrifying, world-changing reality. And 100 years after Einstein's discovery, relativity is still shaping the way we live. In a quarter mile, use the left two lanes to turn left onto Main 77 North. But GPS wouldn't work if it weren't for general relativity. Why is that? Because the clocks on those satellites that are determining your position are ticking at a different rate. And you can show if we didn't take into account general relativity, in about 10 seconds, your your GPS would be out of kilter. And in a day, it'd be two kilometers off you've got a relativity box in your pocket. Einstein's amazing discovery helps you get where you're going, and it's still showing the way for physicists 100 years later. That concludes part one of our Einstein series. It was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. On our next podcast bonus episode, directions for how to get back to 1985. From Herr Dr. Einstein to Doc Brown, relativity goes to the movies. That's next time on part two of Studio 360's special science and creativity series. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 